0: local body election time. If you're thinking, what do council do for me? Take a look around.
1: People should vote in the local elections because local government, whether they like it or not, really affects them. There's
0: complex infrastructure ticking away, urban planning to create and protect green spaces, and new facilities being built all the time.
1: You may not pay rates, you may be a renter, but... Your rent will be affected by whatever your landlord is paying in rates. If your bin doesn't get picked up because the council is inept, that affects you, of course. Whether or not there is enough housing in your town for you to go and then buy a house will also affect you. So
0: far, so boring. All that stuff will happen without me dropping my voting papers in the mail, right? Some community-minded person will look after my best interests whether or not I'm engaged in the process. Hmm, maybe not, because this year, the local body elections have developed a strange twist.
2: There's a couple of weeks ago, Stuff released the Fire and Fury documentary by our Stuff circuit team. And what that revealed was that Voices for Freedom, or VFF, had plans to infiltrate decision-making positions to make, in their words, New Zealand ungovernable.
1: This is the introduction of a cancer that is going to metastasize. There is no if and or but. About it. It would
0: behoove us to take these guys seriously and what it will mean for our democracy. Um, you know, I think we've seen what they are capable of doing in terms of shutting our capital down. Maybe not right now in August, but at some stage we will have to wake up and, and sort of address this. This is a dangerous situation for New Zealand, and the failure to recognize this will be our demise. I'm Alexia Russell, and on the detail today, council elections and why this year. We should be more proactive about doing our homework on the
2: candidates. They're sophisticated operators and media journalists need to be really on guard for precisely what it is that, they're, that is behind the messages that they're giving you, whether it's accurate, whether the people that they're fronting are credible and whether their views are, are dangerous.
0: That Stuff Circuit journalist Paula Penfold talking to Media Watch about the Fire and Fury documentary and the tricky line journalists tread when it comes to giving a platform to people who peddle conspiracy theories and misinformation. Her colleague Andrea Vance is part of a Stuffed team now checking the credentials of every candidate standing for local office in the country, including whether Voices for Freedom is pulling their strings.
2: They are standing candidates in local body elections to, I guess, try and fly under the radar and get themselves elected to decision-making positions throughout the country with that goal in mind, making New Zealand ungovernable. Um, So from that, we started to realise that there were candidates uh, across the country that were, if they weren't VFF, they were certainly candidates who had a colourful history of sharing conspiracy theories and misinformation and pro- and sort of participating in, in sort of fringe movements. So with that in mind, we started reporting basically last week. We started looking into local body candidates, researching them and trying to find the ones with these views. Um, so stuff's um, created this database of candidates and we're just uh, slowly working, very slowly working our way through it because it's quite—it's actually quite a lot of work. Luckily, we have, you know, stuff has a really good reach across the country. We've got newsrooms almost everywhere. And so we've got a big team of people just plodding our way through the lists. Um, and we find we've
0: rooted out quite a few. There's one that I've seen stuff on Twitter about, a Dunedin candidate, Pamela Perry I mean, she's talking about climate change is a hoax and we need the CO2 to make the trees grow. She presumably yeah. has a red yeah, flag.
2: Yeah, there are there are a there are a lot of um red flags. I mean what what we found is that a lot of it has echoes of the alt-right, or they are alt-right, and that's basically another way of, of saying white supremacy, but they're also meshed in with these other fringe movements, so it becomes quite hard to define. And so you've got anti Facts, anti-climate change, or climate change is a hoax. The pandemic, the COVID nineteen pandemic, is a is a hoax. Um, you've got theories about the United Nations or the World Economic Forum, which wants to take control of all of our lives, take control of local councils, local governments, um, all these sort of strange theories about quite innocuous uh, UN sustainability goals becoming this enormous vehicle for for controlling all our lives so so yeah like I say it's really really hard to define because it's all these different fringe movements and fringe conspiracies meshed in with disinformation so it's a little bit of a web to try and untangle yeah Um, and they're not I presume standing under one banner and they don't put VFF
0: by their names
2: no not at all and and a lot of the candidates that we've that we've done or that we've reported on are not VFF aligned or even or or say that they're VFF-aligned, they are just basically conspiracy theorists. So we we reported on a group in Northland last week targeting the local bodies up there called Sovereignty New Zealand. Now under the headline, the COVID-19 conspiracy theorists targeting Northland's local elections, Stuff's Andrea Vance said a group of eight candidates is running for office there, espousing conspiracy theories and COVID-19 disinformation under the banner of Sovereign. Well, I think their main policy platform is uh, UN Agenda 30, or sometimes called UN Agenda 21, which is this crazy um, notion that that the UN's sustainability goals and goals to end world hunger and enhance gender equality is somehow this great conspiracy.
1: There's a, almost a, a pivot from the the vaccine issue to other issues. So they're talking more about um, things like the significant natural areas and um, even talking about um, climate change and managed retreat and then conspiracy theories about uh, UN Agenda 2030 and things like this. And we'll probably see a bit of this in the, in the local election.
2: So that seems to be their main policy platform, but then there's a whole other things that they mix in, like anti-vaccine, anti-climate change, uh, and a whole lot of other a whole lot of other things. Like I say, it's quite it's quite difficult to define. And I don't want to talk about these people and kind of espouse their beliefs and yes. give them a, a platform yes. because a lot of it is is like it's fake news, it's half truths, it's misinformation. Some of it is violent rhetoric. You know, it's just it's a rabbit hole really. Mm, why now,
0: Andrea? Why I mean, usually there's very little interest in standing for the council, you know. Apart from people who are just obsessed with their local communities, there must be something tying this movement together, or is it just random kind of colourful people deciding
2: this is my year? I, I don't think there's like two or three people controlling this as as a as a movement as such. I th- you know I, I don't honestly don't think I haven't seen any evidence. That it's that organizes obviously VFF and their goals, which they've made really clear. And they have, they do have a network of people standing in low body elections. But this sort of rise of the conspiracy theorists and the fringe politics, um, it's probably two things. A lot of people have drawn comparisons with what's happened in America and Trumpism. And we do know that one of Trump's kind of tactics for the 2024 presidential campaign is to try and get control of these democratic institutions and targeting sort of low level local races. That's a a feature of, of how he's working. And that's been, you know, that's been reported on quite a lot in America. So I think it's, it's an echo of that or a sort of aping those tactics. But then of course, you kind of need an event to galvanise that, to build it around. And and a lot of people have pointed to Trump's event was the big lie that he was robbed of the, of the presidential election the so last time around.
1: Never conceded. No reason to
2: concede. When you look at the numbers of these swing states. The election was a fraud. The election fraud of 2020 presidential election. Nobody's ever seen anything like it. And I think... I think ours is probably COVID-19, you know, um, that's really given rise to a lot of misinformation, a lot of spreading of um, fake news, the growth of sort of online, I wouldn't want to call them news networks, but you know what I mean, information sharing networks like Counterspin. They have a big audience now, those those things. Yeah, they do, they do. And that sort of grew in popularity and strength around the occupation of Parliament in, in February, March. basically drew a lot of people together. They increased their networks. They, they have lots of chat rooms that they can talk in. They use social media and they're all connected now. So I think it's, it's, a, it's been a sort of a slow wave of events that have led up to this, starting with, with Trump and then COVID-19 and the occupation of parliament. I mean, a lot
0: of this is directed at central government, but so why local government? I mean, do they see
2: this as a, a first step on the ladder? I think you hit the nail on the head earlier when you talked about apathy um, and local government elections are... They are not um, scrutinised to the same extent um, in the media than than national body politics. It's a lot easier to break into local government politics. It's it's very difficult to start a mainstream party in New Zealand and reach the 5% threshold and get media airtime and be taken seriously and uh, raise money and gather resources and volunteers. All those things you really need to break into national central government politics. It's much easier in local body politics, because it's cheaper. You have sort of a platform that doesn't maybe get as much scrutiny. There's lots of local level candidate events that you can use to platform your ideas. The media coverage doesn't scrutinize your views quite as closely. So there's all kinds of reasons. And I think it's probably easier to get because of our lack of interest in in local body politics. And I guess the lack of not to throw shade on some of our local body politicians, but the um, the bar is lower, shall we say, mm. um, to get voted onto local council. The calibre of candidates is, is um, in some cases, somewhat lacking.
1: I was initially hired at the Dominion Post as a crime reporter and I, I asked to change to local government because it's this incredible soap opera where it can be so petty and so very human, but there's millions of dollars at stake and and a lot at stake for the public, so that's, that's what I love about it.
0: This is Felix Demaret, a local democracy reporter with the Rotorua Daily Post, fresh off his win at the Voyager Media Awards for the best local government reporting in the country. He admits he's in the minority when it comes to his fascination with local-level politics.
1: Maybe it's not as sexy, but um, I'm obviously a bit biased about that because I think local government is pretty sexy. I think it's pretty entertaining. So I would argue maybe people should try to be more engaged. But on the flip side of that, uh, I think our society should try to get people more engaged with it. It shouldn't always be coming from the voters' end to, to, to be engaged. Um I can understand why people feel apathetic that these uh, decisions are foregone conclusions, but they're absolutely not. And I see the influence that people can have when they make submissions and, of course, when they, they vote. And in a way, the low voter turnout is an argument to vote because your vote actually has even more impact.
0: Last election year, 2019, less than half of eligible voters turned out, just 42%. That was in spite of pressing issues such as Wellington's sewage crisis. So why the public apathy?
1: I think it depends on what part of the public we're talking about. So, I mean, as an example, myself, I've just bought a house and now I pay rates. And that makes local government come literally to my letterbox now. Um, So I think... We do have a skewing towards uh, older voters because they do tend to be homeowners. And like I said, uh, local government is is much more in their face because it, it um, in, a, in, a, in more real terms hits their pocket. But of course, it affects renters as well. And I think that's why we see uh, a pretty low turnout, particularly from that 18 to 24 age bracket.
0: Yes, because you might, as a renter, say, "Well, I don't pay rates, so it doesn't really matter to me." But actually, your landlord is most certainly taking rates into an account when he sets your rent.
1: Absolutely, yes, mm. yeah, for sure.
0: Is low turnout a given this election?
1: Um, I, I well, I I think I live in hope that it's not. Um, uh, but but the statistics do show that the engagement in voting has been slipping since 1989. I think I'd like to think that things like local democracy reporting have helped uh, increased engagement because I do think part of the problem is that the public don't know how local government affects them, don't know what the council's up to, and so that sort of fuels a bit of apathy and in, in that local government is a sort of foregone conclusion. So, I mean, obviously the ideal would be is if engagement and voting lifted, but um, it's a, it looks like it's a pretty massive mountain to scale at this Mm. stage.
0: Because I mean, you know, when people come to think about what affects their lives, you know, you think education, crime, uh, housing, that's all central government. But the things that affect their everyday lives, the footpaths, the parks, what's being done about climate change, your environment, they're all things that the council looks at, aren't they?
1: That's right. But I would also argue that Things like housing. While councils can't directly build houses, although they have in the past, some social housing, they can have a massive influence on the government and what the government does with lobbying, depending on how effective the mayor and council are at that. And they can change levers at a local scale in order to enable housing. So obviously infrastructure is a massive thing, and it certainly is here in Rotorua. And the council here has been trying quite hard to uh, get funding from the government to increase infrastructure to to boost housing so it actually can affect across the board all sorts of issues um, and people don't really realize how wide-ranging local government can be.
0: In Rotorua, what are your big
1: issues? Uh, Well definitely the biggest issue at the moment is the community safety around uh, emergency housing
0: I should have known the answer to that question because back in June, Sharon Brett Kelly did a detailed podcast about it.
1: This is Fenton Street, which was um, referred to as Rotorua's Motel Mile or Rotorua's Golden Mile uh, for many, many years. Now it's uh, referred to as Rotorua's MSD Mile.
0: It has not only changed the look of the street, but it's changed the way local people feel about their town, about their city. I love Rotorua, but I'm
1: scared to drive around Rotorua at night with my doors unlocked. That's been a massive issue in this town. And then housing too, of course, um, in a more general sense with the, the housing crisis. But I think at the forefront of most people's minds here is the impact of crime. Obviously, there's not necessarily a correlation with emergency housing. But that is the conclusion that a lot of people have drawn, that there are a lot more people in emergency accommodation and motels in the middle of Rotorua and all of those uh, suburbs that surround the motels uh, being affected. Um, Rotorua has one of the highest crime rates, if not the highest, I think, crime rates in New Zealand. Um, And I mean, since I moved into my house, my flatmate's car has been broken into twice. So, um, and it's just sort of part of uh, living in Rotorua to some extent, but it shouldn't be.
0: And is this something that any of the candidates for council are actively campaigning about? Do they have promises to do something about this? It's certainly
1: been raised, at least by Fletcher Tabato and Renal McPherson and Raj Kumar. Um, Also, Tanya Tapsell at her campaign launch announced that her council would put... $1.5 $1.5 million towards community safety. But the problem with that is that she can't make that promise. She is, is, if she is elected the mayor, she will be just one vote on the council. So she will need to get all of her, uh, well, at least a majority of councillors on board in order to okay any kind of funding. Um, so there's something that she might be able to say she has a commitment to at the moment um, but she cannot promise it
0: And this is a major difference I think that perhaps people don't really understand isn't it between local body elections and and central elections is that the mayor is really just one person and they either have to have very good powers of persuasion or they have to bring in a ticket with them
1: That's right I mean uh, but a mayor can be hugely influential and I mean even just with the the title of mayor they do uh, sort of bring with it some some sort of baggage, um, some positive baggage, I suppose, um, to be more influential of the councillors. But if a mayor ends up with a council that's not particularly on board with them or the mayor is not very popular, then it can be quite problematic for them. And, and we've seen that down in Wellington with Andy Foster.
0: Wellington Mayor Andy Foster has been criticised for meeting with anti-mandate protesters. One of his colleagues, Councillor Nicola Young, has called it an embarrassment. We're supposed
1: to be working together for Wellington
0: and he is a lone wolf. I mean, he's the mayor, he should be working with the
1: council, that's what's embarrassing.
0: At least in Wellington, those mayoral chains were hotly contested. But I asked Andrea Vance about the potential for situations where there might be so few people running that fringe
2: candidates could sneak in. I don't think we've quite got the evidence of that yet. Certainly there's fewer candidates and that's a worry. But the idea that like a conspiracy theorist or a VFF candidate would stand unopposed, we haven't quite found that yet. I'm not okay. sure that that's the case, I think. Mm. And the other thing is as well, is that you know this is not inevitable. Like People can pay really close attention to the people standing in their areas. You know, people have the choice. They have, um, they have a vote. They can go out and do research. They can ask questions of their candidates very easily. And also, I think a real red flag that we've noticed is that when someone just pops up, in a local area that really doesn't have a profile it hasn't really done a lot of um sort of local or community work to speak of it's, it's kind of unheard of and certainly in northland i've discovered that that people have just some have come out of the woodwork with a tr- out of track um, history of public service that's a real red flag and th- and those are people that you should maybe be asking a, a bit more questions and putting a bit more scrutiny on as a voter just mm. you know really do your due diligence before you give someone
0: your vote That's the problem though Andrea isn't it nobody does their due diligence I mean you can research these people but do you I mean local body elections have a, a habit of you know electing the people whose surnames begin with A, B and C you know because <laughs> 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 well, people yeah. just and,
2: tick and- the first ones and well, the other thing that's sort of an interesting ethical dilemma for us is that name recognition is really, really important in local um, government elections. People often just vote because they've heard the name. And so we're really conscious of that, that we, by reporting on these people, we're actually enhancing their name recognition. we are drawing attention to them. And so in some senses, maybe causing people to give them a closer look. And maybe they agree with them. Maybe they share some of these crazy conspiracy mm. theories with them. So so like I said, it's a real ethical dilemma. I mean, I'm of the view that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And I think most normal people wouldn't vote for someone with these views or vote for someone who shares, deliberately shares misinformation in a global pandemic, in a health crisis. Like I, I think most reasonable people would stay well clear of people like that. But you know name recognition is is extraordinarily popular so um it is it's it's a good you know it's a good metric of how people vote so yeah it's a <laughs> it's a double edged sword really this reporting yeah
0: absolutely and i mean you know to be fair there's not a, a history of fringe candidates getting a a toehold in new zealand There it, it it really in reality it, it doesn't happen very often does it
2: no, it doesn't, but that doesn't mean that it can't. So, I mean, in a, a, you know, maybe seven or eight years ago, if you'd have told me that Donald Trump would have been um, president and everything that came after that, I wouldn't have believed you. I wouldn't have thought that that could happen. So the New Zealand psyche has a real tendency to see the best in people and want to give everyone a fair go, which is a lovely characteristic, but sometimes makes us a, a, maybe a little bit more naive and gullible about about the... the um shall we say, the darker elements of politics, which are certainly out there and are certainly starting to bleed into into New Zealand politics, not necessarily mainstream, but certainly at levels that we have never seen before, which is, you know, bloody terrifying, really.
0: That's it for today. I'm Alexia Russell. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ you can get us downloaded free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by William Saunders and produced by Sarah Robson. Bonnie Harrison is our associate producer. Thanks to Andrea Vance and Felix Demire. Ka kite anō.